0: All right, let's look together at uh, James chapter 2, a couple of things. Remember, we started this new year with what I called inventory. That was the title of this particular way of getting back into the book of James, inventory, assessing or evaluating and challenging yourself in the new year. So kind of a way to get back in the book of James, this little epistle, one of the oldest in the New Testament, if not the oldest, written by the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, James the Just, written early to a group of dispersed-like seed believers from Jerusalem into the world because of persecution This book, this little letter written to basically say, if you're a Christian, this is how you ought to live. This is the lifestyle and convictions of biblical Christianity. This is, in part, the measuring stick of your claim. Christians do this. Non-Christians don't do this. At the heart of this book, which is where we are focused this morning, is James chapter 2, 14 through 26. This is the hub. This is the heart. Because this is how real faith works. Saving in genuine faith is validatable. And it should not be considered genuine unless there's evidence that validates its reality. Simply making the claim, I'm a Christian doesn't validate that claim. And there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say to them, despite their record of activities, depart from me. I never knew you. And I argued in part that one of the worst things you can do is unintentionally mislead someone into believing they are rightly related to God, that they are saved. And I think the only thing equal to that is misleading yourself. It is possible to deceive yourself, and it is possible to unintentionally mislead someone, to believe that they enjoy a faith that saves. And so James, at the very beginning of this section in chapter 2, is meaning to articulate a concern, and a perspective about how to view that concern. So this is inventory. And I'm going to ask you to assess yourself. Because to miss at this is to miss. Saving faith inventory, the faith that saves. Do you have the faith that reconciles you with God? And what gives you that confidence? Is it because you profess Christ? I believe in Jesus. I know He's the Son of God. I believe He died for sinners. I believe He died for me. Is your knowledge of the truth of Christ and His work of salvation sufficient to save? I quote again Charles Spurgeon, Nobody is saved simply because they know who Jesus is, and nobody's saved by believing Christ died for them. Isn't that a shocking statement? And that's because saving faith is more than claims. It's more than what you say. It's more than words. And it's more than believing the facts about salvation. Let's begin in verse 14, and we'll work our way to verse 21, which is our focus today. James, what use is it? What value? What benefit? What use is it, my brethren? So he's talking to people who believe They're in the family of God. Brothers, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says, so these are words, that he has faith, but he has no works, can that kind of faith save him? Faith that says, but faith that doesn't work. If a brother, here's an illustration, verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, key words, what use is that? Implied, no use. Verse 17, even so... Faith, if it has no works, is dead, and the reason is because it is by itself. So, first of all, we recognize that saving faith, according to verses 14 through 17, is more than words faith. It's more than a confession, it's more than a profession. It necessarily involves manifesting itself in caring and practical loving your neighbor actions. Real and saving faith, listen to this, changes how you treat people. Saving faith necessarily involves repenting from sinful and self-interested attitudes and actions. It is more than religious professions, and it's more than religious actions. It is necessarily displayed in charitable actions, or it is not saving faith. It is impossible for saving faith to be present and you not to have a heart for someone else that mobilizes and motivates you to engage their need, not just to acknowledge them. So here's an inventory question. Assess yourself. I make the claim. Does my life validate that claim by the way I treat other people? Am I self-interested? Or am I willing to sacrifice assets, time, and energy to serve the needs of the people in my world? Because James says you can say it, but if you don't have validating work to justify that claim, it has no use to you. Verse 18, But someone may well say, do you see it? They're talking. They're making a claim. They may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me, says James, your faith without the works. Implied, that's not possible. And I will show you my faith by my works. Because the words are validated by the life. You believe... And this is the second big idea. Saving faith is more than believing the facts faith. It is more than intellectual knowledge. It's more than truth convictions. You may say, verse 19, you believe, so it's more than words now, you have inward convictions that God is one. Coming from the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one which is a claim they would understand, it's a conviction that they would share, it's a claim that basically says God is God, God is God alone, and He is one first and one of a kind, elevated above all others, priority first and foremost. You believe that, you do well, and it is well, it's positive, it certainly is significant, but watch this, verse 19, the demons also believe and shudder. We spent a good bit of time the last time I was with you talking about demon theology, the vast amount of orthodox truth that demons believe. Demons are orthodox. They do know the truth. They know the truth about God. They know the priority of God. They know He's one of a kind. There is no other. They know He is first and foremost. They know God. They fear God. But they hate God. A very rare word. They shudder. The word shudder is hair standing on end. It's bristling. Bristling because of intense fear. That certainly would be true. They fell down in fear in the presence of Jesus. They acknowledged that Jesus was God, that He was worthy of submission and honor. They know Jesus has authority over them. They know that the ultimate end is torment and torture in whatever day that has been appointed. And when they see God, they know God, they tremble out of fear because of the reality of God, His authority. And yet... They are not saved simply fearing God because the other way Shudder can be used is to bristle and hiss, listen to this, in hate. They hate God. They hate Jesus Christ. They fear Him, but they don't respond as God deserves and desires. They fear Him and they hate Him. Demons believe, listen to this, in the true identity, the true authority, and the priority of God, and yet they are not saved because it is possible to truly believe these truths and not be saved and be destined for hell. You can have a high view of God, they do. You can know the way of salvation, Acts 16 says. When the demonized girl said, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. They know the gospel. They know the truth. They know the identity of God. Their theology proper is significantly orthodox and true, and yet they hate God rather than responding out of love for God. Let me bottom line with you. Are you saved? You not only have to believe the right things about God, you have to respond rightly, manifesting love for God. That's what the Shema says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one of a kind. He's first and foremost. Consequentially, we will love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because true saving faith, is a faith that treats God as he deserves and desires. Do I love him? is significant expression of believing faith, life and heart changing faith. It is not possible to be saved by grace through faith and not have affection for the one who saved you. We love Him because He first loved us. Treating God as God deserves and desires is a validation of saving faith. The demons believe in who He is. They fear Him for who He is, and they hate Him for who He is. You believe that God is one, you do well. Verse 20, But you are willing... But are you, rather, willing to recognize, now here's a question, are you really willing to add this up and draw a wise and justified rational conclusion? Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So I'm claiming it, but I'm not charitably expressing it. I'm saying I believe it, but I'm not loving God like I own it. Are you willing to acknowledge, foolish fellow, that claiming it and believing it without validating works or behavior that expresses it, that makes that faith or that claim useless? Because faith without works is useless. Saving faith treats God as he deserves and desires. It is not just, I believe, the right things about God. Now, with verse 21, we move from dead, useless for saving claims, faith, what saving faith is not, to James chapter 2, 21 through 26, what saving faith is. And James provides two compelling, and I'm going to call them radical, examples. That the faith that saves works. It is validated and manifested in the expression of practical and visible works of that faith. And James is going to make his case by illustrating the nature of real and saving faith by presenting two well-known Widely known examples of saving faith from polar opposites of the social spectrum. He's going to use example one, a respected and highly regarded person. Example number two, the least and disrespected and least regarded person. From a revered Jewish forefather, to a despised Gentile sinner, from a respected Jewish leader, to a pagan Gentile sex worker, from a man to a woman. Abraham would be, in this section of Scripture, James's choice as the example of the best of men, and he would choose Rahab, the harlot, as an example of the worst of humanity. And yet he will say both of them The best and the worst, by human assessment, are both justified by faith, and that justification is validated by their works. And I asked you last time, what are the validating evidences you see in Abraham and in Rahab? Follow with me, verse 21. Was not Abraham, example number one, our father... Remember, these are Jewish Christians, dispersed like seed, saved in Jerusalem, dispersed by persecution. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? A rhetorical question, was not Abraham our father? Verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot, both of them, the claim made, justified by works? Rhetorical question, affirmative answer, well, actually, yes, they were. They were both justified by works. The faith that made them righteous was validated by their works of faith manifest in these well-known and famous expressions of their actions as a result of their convictions and faith. Real-time, practical actions justifying the claim that they had faith. Now you know, if you've been around the Word of God very long, that this is what this use of the word justified which is plain and obvious here in the text, justified by works. Verse 25, Rahab justified by works. Now hold it. If you're a Christian, you know, if you've read through the epistles of Paul, where the vast majority of times the word justified is used, as a matter of fact, 14 of 39 New Testament uses are in the book of Romans alone, you know that justification... Comes how? By faith alone. As a matter of fact, let's look at it, just in case some of you aren't familiar with it. Look at Romans chapter 4, where Paul is using the word faith as a reference to real faith, not useless faith, legitimate belief. James is speaking in this little section of illegitimate faith, claims without content. Paul is dealing with the works of the law. James is dealing with the works of faith. Chapter 4, as it relates to the person we are addressing, let's let's begin actually in chapter 3, verse 28. Paul talking, we maintain that a man is justified. Look up for just a second. The word justified comes from a root word which means righteous, right. And by way of determining how the word right is used, it means one of two things, to be made right or to be declared right. Righteous, justified, acquitted is determined by the context because the word can be made or declared righteous or it can mean to show to be righteous. Manifesting that I am righteous, justified by my behavior, or the declaration that I am righteous. Tikao comes from the idea, and it actually means to declare someone to be righteous. It's a legal term. You're righteous, you're acquitted, you're not guilty, you're more than not guilty, you're more than innocent, you're righteous before God. That's a claim, it's a legal claim, or it means to show the rightness of something or someone. Context determines what it means. In Romans chapter 3, the concern is, do you get right with God by the works of the law? And the claim is made that you cannot be made righteous by fulfilling the works of the law. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be, what? Justified in his sight. Made right. Declared to be right before God. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but not the means to be made right with God. Verse 28, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from what? The works of the law. or by or is God the God of the Jews only verse 29 is he not the God of Gentiles also so we're talking about everybody Jews and Gentiles since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jew, and the uncircumcised through faith is one. So one God justifies both the Jew and the non-Jew, the legally circumcised by way of the Mosaic law, and those who have not been circumcised because they're Gentiles not submitting to the law, and both of them are justified how? By faith, not by the works of the law. And then he begins in verse 1 of chapter 4, to involve the character that's used by James as an illustration of the faith that justifies. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How was he justified? How was he legally declared to be right with God? By faith. By believing God. God made a promise. Abraham believed that promise. Because salvation... Justification is the product of believing the promises of God. Abraham believed. Verse 9, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Look at the end of verse 9, chapter 4. For we say faith was credited, that's a legal term, to his account, to Abraham, as righteousness. So, justification, as Paul used it, is a forensic legal term. And this is just one example, and it's perhaps the most well known one involving the character Abraham. And chapter 4 is all about Abraham's faith. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness the righteousness that comes through faith. You see it at the end of verse 13. You're actually going to see, as a matter of fact, let's pick it up. In verse 20, chapter 4, yet with respect to the promise of God, a reference to the promise that His too old to have a child, wife, Sarah, she's going to have a son. Out of that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver, a reference to Abraham, in unbelief, but grew strong through faith, and it is through faith. Faith is the means. He grew strong through faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured. Here's a description or definition of faith. This is what faith does. Full assurance that what God had promised, He was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to Him as what? Righteousness. Now, one of the ways justification gets used, and Paul's using it this way, to combat the lie or the argument of the legalistic Jews, to say that righteousness with God is not secured by the works of the law. I don't care if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no way that by doing the works of the law, you can secure a rightness that acquits you before God. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. Salvation is a work of grace, unmerited favor. It offers to you a righteousness that you can't earn by work. Number one, because you can't fulfill the law perfectly, and perfect work is required for righteousness or justification. So doing the works of the law doesn't get you saved. Because you can't do the works of the law. But God makes promises to offer you righteousness, not your own. The righteousness of His Son, He who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2. So that no one can boast. Justification, being made right with God, a legal position, is the product of believing the promises of God. No matter what the evidence might be normally or naturally, I promise you this girl is going to have a baby. She's too old to have a baby. I'm too old to have a baby. But he staggers not at the promise of God because the issue of the faith that saves is not about the natural conditions, about the promises of God that can reverse natural realities. I don't care how old she is. I don't care how old I am. My faith is not, not in me and it's not in her. My faith, the faith that is credited as righteousness, is in him, the promiser. And the promiser says that if you will believe, trust in me exclusively, you will be justified, you will be saved. That's how Paul's using it. Faith justifies because it believes in the God who promises to grant righteousness to a sinner who cannot be made righteous on his own. It's an act of God a declaration of God and let me say this and please hear it justification in this sense is a once for all event that never needs to be repeated is never altered and never revoked nor rescinded Justification is a change in your standing before God, which has to do with relationships that were broken because of sin and the violation of His perfect law. And that change from guilt and condemnation to acceptance, reconciliation is a product of the declaration of God, not your work. You're the declaration of God because you are believing the promise of God by faith that what Jesus did to substitute for me not only released me from my indebtedness, it provided a righteousness that makes me acceptable to you. Justification. To declare or cause someone to have a proper legal standing with a perfect God who represents pure and perfect righteousness. You cannot earn your way to God and be justified in His sight by any work of the law that you do. And if that makes sense, would you say amen? I get that. Okay? So if you're here today, you're not going to heaven because you're a good person. You're not going to heaven because you attempt to keep all of the laws of God that you understand. One, you cannot keep those laws. Number two, you cannot secure satisfaction for a righteousness that you didn't have before you started to try. The only way you can deal with the failure to meet the mark of God's expectation. We all fall short of what? The glory of God. The standard of perfection that represents our holy creator, we all fall short. It's infinitely higher than we can attain. And we've already, having become aware of that standard, are guilty of not meeting it. So we have a record of debt that we owe, even if we could somehow go, you know what, I'm going to be better today. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better guy. Even if I could be a better guy to the point where I didn't fail again, I've got this grocery list of failures that preceded that conviction and claim. How am I going to deal with that? Salvation must be by grace through faith because a record i can't make up for and a record that i need that i can't secure fundamentally i'm busted i cannot be justified god is holy he doesn't change his holiness harry you tried really hard i know it heaven's perfect i'm perfect but come on in you can enjoy relationship with me you tried That's not justified. Justified is the product of receiving a gift of righteousness, not your own. By exercising faith in the God who promises to grant it to all who will repent and believe. The only way to justification with God in this sense, to be made righteous, is by grace through faith and the promise of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why I like when I share the gospel with people and I have a chance to open the Bible, I like John 1. I like John 1 because John 1 comes out of the gate saying, Jesus, the Logos of God was in the beginning with God, and the Logos of God was God. So whoever the character is, the Lagos, whenever the beginning was of creation, he already was eternal. He is God. He's with God. He enjoys fellowship with God. And nothing that you see that was made has been made without him. The Lagos is the creator. And I like to go through those first 11 verses in John, which make abundantly plain who Jesus is, the word that becomes flesh. And it talks about the fact that he came unto his own, and his own didn't receive him, which sets up the claim made or the necessary understanding of verse 12. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. They didn't welcome him. They didn't accept him for who he was and who he claimed to be. Verse 12, one of my favorite share the gospel verses. But to as many as do receive him, The word receive is dekomai, welcome. Be like a knock, knock, knock on your door. You open the door. You like who you see, and you welcome them into your home. Dekomai. But to as many as recognize who he is. God in the beginning. God, very God, creator of everything, light of the world, the giver of life, the possessor of life the one that his people didn't welcome, but to as many as welcome him. I say, I know who you are. I want to welcome you for who you are and all the implications of that. Lord, creator, master, life giver. To as many as received him, welcome him to them. He gives the power, the authority of God to become children. To all who believe, that's Pistis' faith, rely exclusively on his name, his identity, and his name is put for who he is and what he has done. Saving faith, becoming a child of God, involves receiving him for who he is, not working for him, accepting him, welcoming him, and believing in his work, in his name, in his person, his identity, and his activity on your behalf. To them he gives the authority to become the sons of God. I love that passage because it makes abundantly clear that being made right with God, being made a child of God, is the product of receiving the Son of God and the work of that Son on your behalf. Saving faith involves justification in the work of Christ alone as a gift. It is a legal claim. It is a status that I have that once I receive it, I enjoy it forever. But it also means to demonstrate or to show that I am righteous. Matthew chapter 11 uses this exact same word, and it's translated vindicated. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, verse 19. This is the other way the word justified is used. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated, shown to be right, proved to be right and accepted by God by her deeds. You see it again in Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35, when Jesus is talking about the people of this generation. They're like children who sit in a marketplace, 31 through 35, Luke's gospel, who sit in a marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Now, now what's going on there is basically Jesus is saying the generation that I am in the midst of, doesn't respond to ever, any kind of stimuli. They ignore it. If it's a call to celebration and dance, like at a wedding, they don't respond. If it's a call to a dirge or mourning and weeping, like at a funeral, this generation doesn't respond to anything. I don't care if it's a happy call Or a sad call. They do not respond. And then he goes on to say, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, a reference to Jesus himself, has come eating and drinking. So John didn't eat, he did not drink wine. You said, he has a demon. The son of man comes, he eats and he drinks. And you say, this guy's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. In other words, this generation, they accept nothing. They do not respond to the call to worship or celebrate. They don't respond to the call to weep. They don't accept John the Baptist because he doesn't eat or drink. They say he has a demon. They don't respond to Jesus, the Son of Man, because he does eat and drink, and they call him gluttonous. They reject every single call. They manifest a kind of wisdom that is or the lack of wisdom that indicates they are not children of God. That's why verse 35 says, Yet wisdom is vindicated, validated, justified by all her children. Each child of wisdom validates that wisdom in their own unique way by responding to the call of God that's commensurate with or... or justified to the call that is being made. If it's a wedding call from heaven to rejoice, they're justifying that claim or vindicating the wisdom by responding that way. If it's a call to a dirge and sadness and mourning they're going to respond to that call and their behavior is going to validate the wisdom that they see it, they get it, and they're responding to it. When they see John the Baptist who doesn't eat or drink and they understand he's a messenger from heaven, they're going to respond, validate the wisdom from God that says, we accept him as a prophet of God. When the Son of Man comes eating and drinking and shows himself to be a friend of sinners, the wisdom of heaven is going to be vindicated or validated or justified because they're going to accept God's claim about his son, about his prophet, about his call to worship or or celebrate or the call to mourn because of the consequences of sin. The big idea is the word justify can mean to validate by behavior, to demonstrate by behavior that you believe that you are functioning according to a righteousness that's inward, you're manifesting that righteousness by your behavior outward. Which is why verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified? This back to James chapter 2. He, James is saying justification in this sense is to show yourself to be righteous. James 2:21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. Now in Genesis 15:6 God said to Abram or Abraham because he believed in the promises of God the Bible says he was reckoned as righteous. It wasn't until Genesis 22 where Abraham offered Isaac on the altar of sacrifice. Abraham had already been justified positionally. He had already been declared righteous by faith in the promise of God. James is not using justified in this context to say Abraham was declared righteous, but rather that he was shown to be righteous, validated in that claim by his willingness to offer Isaac. This work of offering Isaac was the undeniable, invisible manifestation to men of the fact that at some point in the past, Genesis fifteen six. He was justified by God through faith and declared by right, righteous by God on the basis of his faith. Listen to the New Living Translation as it interprets this, translates it in a way that captures this thought. James 2.21 would read this way, New Living Translation, Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God? by his actions, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. True faith is justified in real time. And it's justified by works that validate the verbal claims. In this context... James is a believer in salvation by grace through faith. He's talking about faith in verse 14 as chapter 2 as a necessary reality for saving condition or relationship with God. He says in James 1.18 that you're brought forth, if you're a true Christian, you're brought forth by the word of truth, not the works of the law. Go back to Acts 15 for a moment. Oh, man. Yep, time flies when you're talking. (laughs) Acts 15 is a council of elders and apostles. The question on the table is, does salvation require the works of the law? Do you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? Is it faith plus works? The apostle Peter stands up in verse 7 of chapter 15 at this council of apostles and elders who are looking into the matter. And after there had been much debate, so there's a lot of discussion, Peter stands up, verse 7, and he says to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction. Listen to Peter. He made no distinction between us and them, between the Gentiles and the Jews, cleansing their hearts how? By faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What yoke? The works of the law. You must keep the law of Moses. Verse 10, excuse me, verse 11. But we believe, here's Peter, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So here's his conclusion. He stands up and he says, listen, there's been a big debate. I'm telling you, salvation comes by grace through faith. It doesn't include the works of the law. We couldn't carry that. They can't carry that. We all know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is what saves. Verse 13, and after they had stopped speaking, James, the author of our little epistle, answered and said, brethren, listen to me. Look at verse 19. It is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them... Trouble them with what? The work of the law. The burden of the law. That we write to them to abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? Because Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James stands up and said, here's what I'm going to declare as the leader of this council and as its spokesman. We're not going to trouble them. We're not going to annoy them with the burden of the law. Because salvation is by grace through faith. What we are going to ask them to do is to abstain from things contaminated by idols to be morally pure from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? Because doing those things don't get you to heaven, but because the law of Moses is taught in every city and we want to be an influence in every city for the gospel of God and the truth of God, we want to avoid creating barriers to that truth. We want to act wisely by avoiding things that will inflame opposition to the gospel we preach. These things I'm asking are not things that save you. These things that I'm asking are obvious things that will prevent the people from hearing it because Moses, and these emphatic points, he's preached in every city and every synagogue. So James stands up and says, I have decided, this is the bottom line, verse 19, it is my judgment. So let me... uh, Draw a conclusion for this morning. I'm saying that the author of this book, by way of context, could not be saying that Abraham was justified by what he did, but rather he validated his justification by the works that he performed. Because salvation is by faith alone, and faith is never alone, it works justifying the claim manifesting. James is the head of the church. Peter, I've decided, I agree with him. Salvation to the Gentiles and to the Jews is by grace through faith. And we're not going to annoy them or to burden them with the requirements of the law. We're just going to ask them to do some things to avoid making a barrier to the claims of the gospel. And the guy who said that in Acts 15 wrote a little letter just a few years later to the church dispersed out of that council and out of that city and said, justification, righteousness is validated by righteous behavior. Not my righteous behavior makes me righteous. And I'm going to call Abraham to the scene because you all know it was reckoned to him to be righteous in in Genesis 15 as a promise of God he accepted. And then in Genesis 22, multiple years later, he's willing to offer his son. And you know what that does? It validates his claim. It doesn't make him righteous. It said saving faith behaves like this. Now, I didn't get as far as I had hoped today. Does that surprise anybody? Probably not. But this is what I want you to work on this week. What were the characteristics? Here's a meditation for you to do. What are the characteristics of saving faith that were modeled in Abraham when he was willing to offer his only son? Because James is saying genuine faith, it looks like this. So what are the characteristics that are modeled in the man called Abraham, who was not saved by his works, but was validated that he was saved by that work? So think about that. And think about our girl Rahab who was on the opposite end of the spectrum. What about her work is the evidence of true faith? Justification by grace through faith declared righteous. You know what I am? I'm righteous because God said I am, because I've received a gift I cannot earn. I will enjoy this status as a son of God forever. If you're a Christian, you're justified by grace through faith. And if that's true of you, you will live a life that validates that claim. Abraham is an example of validating faith. Consider what he did as a measure of what ought to be true of you. Can you say amen to that? All right, I'm going to leave you hanging. Sorry. Lord willing, I'll see you next Sunday. Father, thank you for the time today in your word. We're grateful for your grace, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.